This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Cleaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have the honor of being joined by a world-renowned family physician and health equity expert with deep experience in value-based care transformation, technology and innovation, and health disparities improvement. You're going to hear from the one and only Dr. Wando Alewala, a leader in, in this race to value who's committed to ensuring that everyone has access to fair, high-quality, and equitable health and health care, matter their background, to achieve this, she has committed her career to health system reform, practice transformation, primary care design, and leveraging technology and other innovations to mitigate health disparities. Dr. Wanda Olewala is Nigerian-American physician, professor, author, speaker, consultant, and health equity leader. She was named the American Telemedicine Association's Woman of the Year in 2019 and one of the most influential minority executives in healthcare by Fierce Healthcare in 2021. She's been a tireless advocate for health care of underserved populations, women and girls, and community and social determinants of health and innovations in technology and the intersection of social justice and health care. She joins us today. She's the inaugural chief health equity officer and senior VP of Humana, a role that she started in 2021. And she's responsible for setting equity agenda and strategy for Humana. As I mentioned, she's an international leader. She's a change agent. She's contributed significantly to healthcare redesign and transformation in the US and the United Arab Emirates, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, and Ireland. And she's also a leader in health and social equity, minority women's issues and women's empowerment. And she, in fact, conceived and curated a national movement in the United States to empower and inspire minority women professionals to excel and advance their careers. And you'll hear more about that today as she speaks. And uh, Dr. O, I'm going to simplify it. <laughs> thank you for joining us today. Great. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, thank you for the very kind and thoughtful introduction. Well, Dr. O, as we start our conversation today, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what drives you as a leader? I'd love for you to share a little bit about your personal background and the formative experiences in your, in your life that has led you towards a career path in health equity transformation. And can you also share a little bit about your work at Humana as their inaugural chief health equity officer and senior vice president, a role that you started two years ago? I do like to always make sure that I orient people around 
this important um, disclosure. I am a, a Black woman. I am of Nigerian uh, descent um, from an immigrant family. I'm married to a Black man. I have two beautiful um, Black children. And as I think about the world that I want them to inherit and the world that I want them to be leaders in, I think about my work being directly related to, to the futures that they have. And the kinds of opportunities that I want for my children are no different than the kinds of opportunities that many of you want for yours. And I'm hoping that the work that we do together ensures that all of our children, all of our nieces and nephews and grandchildren, those that we love, have the same opportunity to achieve their full health potential, regardless of their race, their ethnicity, their background, um, and any other dimension. My career has been a, a really interesting one where there's always been this kind of core health equity, but also workforce related diversity, equity and inclusion work um, built into, into my job, but never really a job title where that is actually my responsibility. But I've had, you know, great fortune of learning and practicing medicine in some of some of the most difficult parts of the country, but also the places that have given me so much um, insight and, and understanding of the unique needs of our patients, but also how the social and environmental influences around them, how things like structural racism, economic injustice influence their health. And I've had a chance to do that doing my work in the community health center space, um, in academic medicine, in the technology space, and now in, a, in the corporate world through um, a large health and wellness plan. So my work at Humana has, has been really interesting um, because we have been on this journey for quite a while to become more than a health insurance company. Many of you know and are, are familiar with our work as a, as a large provider of health insurance. And our, the largest demographic of our membership is, is seniors through a Medicare Advantage. But we also are the largest provider of senior primary care in the nation through our CenterWell clinic model. And so we, we do also do um, healthcare delivery. And so thinking about how we bring those two together, the opportunity that you have for so much of my career, I had been on the payer side, on the clinical medicine, community um, medicine side of healthcare and felt like, gosh, I wish that there was more that I could do with the payers or understand the payers better so that we could bring, we could, we could do more for our patients and our communities. And this has been a great opportunity. And our CEO talks about this all the time is to weave those two together gives us a really great opportunity to think about how we lower costs and, and improve the opportunity for people to have equitable experiences. So we started this work in thinking about health equity really long before my job came. I started this role in 2021 as an inaugural for Humana. Dr. O, I'd love for you to share more about your health equity work at Humana. How has health equity emerged as a cornerstone of value in the organization? And can you speak to this elevated consciousness we have in our country around social justice and health equity and how that's being translated into a reimagined value-based healthcare delivery system? Humana really wondering what its role was going to be as a pioneer or a contributor to health justice and health equity not too long after the killing of Breonna Taylor a few blocks down from Humana's headquarters in Louisville, Kentucky. But prior to that, in 2015, Humana had started this, what we call the Bold Goal, which was a massive population health effort, which we were working on tackling and mitigating social needs of our members across the nation. And so the work around taking care of social needs and understanding the whole person and all the different influences that are around them that influence their health was really important to us for quite a while. And so as we think through our journey from um, focusing on social needs explicitly and how do we really think about health in the context of all the things that, that make people healthy or make them sick or that keep them healthy or keep them sick, we think about we need to make sure that we are innovating constantly in the way that we deliver health care and that we, we finance health care. Make things simpler so people have experiences that, that fit with their lives and their experience and their reality. And how do we make things more and more integrated? 
So healthcare equity has really emerged as an important topic. I'm hopeful and optimistic that our nation is going to continue to lean in to the importance of health equity in many different ways. And you see some of this happening now because a lot of parts of our larger healthcare ecosystem, those that help us define what quality is and good quality carers, those that help us think through how we pay for and finance care, how we maintain high levels of, of patient satisfaction and experience. A lot of these folks are thinking about how health equity can be prioritized. There are lots of initiatives happening at Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, at the Core Quality Measures Collaborative, the National Committee on Quality Assurance. They're all thinking about how do we start to encourage and push um, ourselves as an ecosystem, but also the, the, the providers, the payers that are in, within this ecosystem to really understand what inequities exist and start to do things to address them. So this is not just any one company, it's a, it's a large national movement. And as we think about what we're talking about, how do we make sure that we do everything we can to eliminate barriers to healthcare that are unnecessary, that are avoidable and that are unjust. We're not talking about the things that we maybe can never change, differences in, in health and health outcomes that are the result of a genetic predisposition. Now, maybe there's some things that are modifiable in your genetics, but not necessarily things that are unjust per se, but we're thinking about the things that where there's a where there's a justice or avoidable component that we could we could influence. Maybe they need something a little bit different based on their abilities or based on their sexual orientation or gender identity, their race or ethnicity, their neighborhood, or their religion. So when you think about like, you know, you give someone an insurance card, it says I can get access to care. But if I if I live in an area where it's a primary care desert, there are no critical access hospitals, there's not really anywhere for me to tap into the use of that card. I might have a quality because I've got the card, but I don't have equity. What if we had a world and we imagine a world where we don't have the fence at all and everybody can see and enjoy all that they have in front of them and all the opportunity that this nation affords us or other nations afford them without any need to change anything. Just we can come in as our authentic selves with who we are, no matter what abilities we have, no matter what our race ethnicity is, and we can enjoy. So as we think about that, I want you to keep that in mind as we think about like, what are the kind of things that we can do? And then what are the things that cause the problems in the first place? Dr. O, thanks for providing us with this important perspective on the need for equity in our society. That should certainly be our ultimate aim to ensure the inalienable right to health and happiness as a human being. Can you also provide more specifics on the various types of health disparities that we encounter in our country and how those impact minoritized and marginalized populations? So what we see a lot as health disparities are things that are differences that are not explainable by other other factors in certain outcomes. And for in, in healthcare, we see those as, as clinical outcomes. So what we see as asthma disparities and morbidity, mortality in Hispanic, Latinx uh, children, we think, oh, that's asthma, and they they have more challenges with asthma. Or we see premature births and low birth weight in African American women or Native American Indigenous women and their children. Those are the results of things. And so for every single thing that we're thinking about downstream that we see in a manifestation through kind of a clinical outcome on a dashboard that we have. We're looking at birth weight, we're looking at primary C-sections, we're looking at COVID-related deaths, we're looking at diabetes, um, medication adherence, and A1C control. Then we say, well, why is that true? Is it that Hispanic children have more frequent asthma because they just do? Or is it because we have environmental exposures and toxic exposures and unsafe housing that is actually a, a precursor to those downstream determinants? We've got to start thinking about how do we move ourselves to go further upstream and understand why are those things there? And then if we're willing, and, and we're at a point in the nation where we are willing to have these conversations how do we go even further upstream from that? Okay, so well, why then do they live in unsafe housing? Why do they have these environmental toxins? Why is the water polluted in Flint, right? And those are the kind of things we've got to ask ourselves. 
And when we do that, we start to know that there are things that are further upstream that are that are leading to what we see kind of all the way downstream as, as these, these outcomes, things like poverty, racism, placism, which I did a TED talk a few years ago. And in that in that talk, I talked about places and the impact of place derivative of, of kind of racism as in how that affects your your health and your health outcomes and potential and discrimination. So thinking about those things, if we can be willing as a system to start to move further upstream, we can start to tackle those things that we ultimately see downstream and that affects, you know, what we ultimately see as our scorecards. Dr. O, what a great perspective. We must simply understand these root causes of inequities better and start to go upstream to resolve them. To that point, what is the role that a health plan can play in supporting these necessary changes in care delivery? How is Humana positioning itself as a catalyst for equity innovation by leveraging its health plan and provider assets collectively? So I want to just have us think through how do the combination of this health plan and payer part of our work and our delivery part of our work, how do those come together and how do you achieve health equity in one of these sorts of organizations? And one of the things that have been really foundational to the work that we have been doing, that I've been leading is, is thinking through where are all the places where we have skill, expertise, opportunity, and permission. And let's lean into those. Let's not be things that we cannot be in. What lane do we swim in? Think about where do you have opportunity, expertise, but also where do you have permission? Are you the right ambassador for this particular type of work? Are you the right person to solve this particular problem? We can definitely influence some of those social and structural determinants of health through the work that we do as a payer and a plan and a delivery provider. We can, because we have this large primary care network, we can actually leverage the delivery space to integrate and create meaningful and equitable experiences throughout an entire customer journey. So we think about kind of both the delivery of care, but also the entire journey of a consumer through their healthcare system. We also have great opportunities to work with and leverage the talent and, and skills and expertise of academic partners and clinical partners in our communities, building out the workforce and also learning and leveraging insights from the work that they, they do to support some of the things that we'd like to achieve. And then also really strong community engagement and community engagement and partnership strategy, making sure that, again, like I said, there's some places where we don't necessarily have the permission but we are able to support community partners who have the trust that have the ability to kind of connect in ways that we might not have from where we sit, but leveraging our, our position and our resources to support a lot of our community partners. And underlying all of that work is an ongoing kind of look at performance and how do you use data analytics to draw the right insights to make the right decisions. This inflection point for health equity is not unlike what we saw in the quality improvement and patient safety movement well over 20 years ago, when the IOM released that report to Eras Human, it created a shockwave in the industry because of the ridiculous number of patients that were dying because of medical errors and hospital-acquired affections. Dr. O, are you hopeful that finally our industry is waking up to the systemic issues that are so pervasive in our healthcare delivery system that create inequitable outcomes, just like what we saw with the quality improvement movement? It's actually remarkable for me to think about earlier in my career when, when quality improvement in healthcare became much more popular and important. I, I think sometimes now, like, how could we ever not have been thinking about quality? And, and why was it so radical that we were actually thinking about we need to have quality improvement agenda to our work? It seems so obvious now that needed to be true. But as we kind of think about where we are now, we don't argue about the need for quality improvement in our hospitals, in our, in our clinics, in our nursing homes. We think about quality all of the time. 
And I would love for us to be in a position where we're thinking about equity all of the time, the way we think about quality and everything that we do. And that should be an agenda. So I, I love this, this really important um, paper that was written last year that came out through the National Academy of Medicine, where they described what would be part of an equity agenda if we were thinking of quality improvement. How could we weave the concepts of health equity into a quality improvement framework? They argue that really improving health equity requires a very holistic approach. You can't just have change at the bedside. You've got to have it in the boardroom. You've got to have it in the payer space. Um, you've got to have it in the policy space. And so I really, really appreciate that. So what I want to do here is just walk you through some of the, the high level kind of suggestions from that landmark paper. And one, you know, one thing is they talked about some of the barriers to equity in healthcare. So the impact of, you know, acknowledging the impact of racism and discrimination and all of its forms, not being sufficiently able to integrate social determinants of health, not having reliable healthcare data on communities that have been historically marginalized or, or disenfranchised. But they also talk in this perspective piece about some actions that we could take to actually leverage where we are right now in this moment that we have and really start to think about how do we integrate equity more squarely into quality improvement agenda. So the framework has a number of different things. I don't want to go through every single one of them, but there are things that talk about how do you make sure you've got a health equity lens in the work that you're doing. The quality improvement work has a health equity lens to it. What does your dashboard look like and how does your dashboard speak to equity? Whatever I can, I can bet if you don't have certain things on your dashboard as an organization, as a health system, as an academic medical system, as a clinical organization, private practice, if you don't have it, you're probably not doing that much to change it. And, and how do you think about where do you, where, how do you leverage a tool like a dashboard, a performance dashboard, a scorecard that you have to really push and advance the work around health equity? It's really important. What kind of leadership commitments do we have? How do you collect better race and ethnicity data as the demographics of our country are changing every single day? And we need to know more and more about who we're serving. It's really important that, we, you know, me as a, as a primary care physician and still practicing as a primary care physician, I know a lot about my patients and I know a lot that I learned in school but they know a lot about what they have lived. And I think it's really important that we think about how do we get the right data so we can provide culturally affirming, culturally sensitive, culturally humble care to people that we take care of and that we're responsible for. So I'm gonna go through a few things. And you know, as we talk through that framework for action, what are some ways that you could, we, we've kind of realized in some of this and some things that I'd love to share with you as you're thinking about how do you make sure you're, you're building this into the fabric of your quality improvement work and, and every opportunity that's possible. And some of the things that were part of that framework were things like building an equity lens and the thing that you're, your work that you're doing, having a dashboard, stratifying data. We published um, a few months ago in the um, New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst, a measure that we had created, which is what we call a health disparities measure that is a single score that allows us to look at disparities across a lot of different domains of healthcare. And the reason why we did this is because we felt that we needed to actually, as an organization, say, what are we looking at? What are we focused on? How do we even start to address disparities if we don't know what they are? And so we looked at a number of different things, such as screening measures, vaccinations, primary care utilization, some, some best practices that are part process that are also outcomes measures, and created this health kind of health disparity score for Medicare Advantage patients and put a lot of these things into this, into this measure and realized that as we were doing it, we were learning so much about some of the differences within the groups that we were looking at and also differences between the groups. But that gave us a really good foundation to start to think about how do we monitor and understand the changes that we're making and the changes that we need to be making to tackle some of that work. 
The next thing is also thinking about how do we you know, get value for your members, for your patients? And they talk in, the, in that framework about the commitment of leadership, commitment, resources, infrastructure to support the health equity work. You can't just expect that it's going to happen because someone cares about it. It's, you've got to resource the work to be able to do it. And I feel really blessed that we've, we've thought about it in a way. Our, our health equity and community engagement team sits under the office of the chief medical officer, otherwise known as ACMO. And it's part of a larger group that that leads that has physician advocacy, healthcare research, and health equity and community engagement. Dr. O, this move to health equity improvement is definitely a culture change for the vast majority of healthcare organizations. But it'll never be hardwired into the DNA of an organization until it's a top priority of executives who are in leadership. And we have to start capturing data on social determinants of health, which is something that isn't required in a fee-for-service model where equity shows up as an afterthought. How should we be thinking about innovation in terms of both executive hiring practices and data capture? And how will this transformational work ultimately prove to be a viable business model in risk-based payment? Thinking about how do you have diversity at all levels of leadership, diversity in thought, diversity in race, ethnicity, diversity in sexual orientation and gender identity, diversity in gender, diversity in age, uh, making sure that you have broad representation so that when you are designing and thinking of programs, initiatives, um, opportunities for your patients, for your members, you have lots of voices that are represented, that are that are seeing blind spots you might have, that are bringing in lived experiences that you may not have, and making sure that you're building that into to the work as part of your strategy. So that's another really important thing and something that we're really focused on as well. Also thinking through actionable data, how do you really make sure that you can look at data in a way that you understand your populations in very meaningful ways and understand that one size may not fit all. We have to be better at how we collect and understand race, ethnicity data. We have to also think about how do we understand the experiences of patients by race, ethnicity, and other parts of their identity in terms of bias and discrimination in their patient experience measures and understand kind of the, the, the needs that they have around them, the social needs, the structural barriers that they have to their living. And so we've been doing a lot of work around screening our members for social needs and understanding different structural barriers to health and trying to turn that into some actionable tools. And what we learned from this was that this is a comparison of, of Medicare Advantage of Humana and then fee-for-service related completion rate for certain process measures that I talked about earlier for our Black dual members. But we found that our members, there was a lot of room for improvement in the way our African-American Black members were completing some of the activities that, that we think are important for preventative care. But we also saw that even within the groups, there were a lot of disparities. So it's really important for us to think through like, what's underneath that? And when we move beyond the data point, what, what are the, some of the things that different populations within our populations might need to experience better care and have better outcomes? Now, to do that, sometimes it's, it's, it's difficult to do that. You can't possibly get to all the millions of members and patients that you take care of, but sometimes you can think through, what are we learning from some of the insights that we're gathering that could be really helpful? And so two years ago, our team created this um, social risk index, where after we did millions and millions of screens looking at social needs of our different members in particular domains, financial strain, food insecurity, housing access, loneliness, and transportation, and those five social needs, we started to look at what we build some predictive models to better understand what were some of the things that we saw in common. How could we connect that work to some of the other things that are that are important for us as a plan? So for example, the medical expense ratio. And what we saw is that the higher the social risk that our members had, the more they, they cost. And that, you know that probably seems intuitive to all of us, but it's important to actually know that that, that is true because then therefore, when you're starting to think about how do we tackle the social needs that people have, you have kind of two different reasons that this is valuable to the corporation. 
for the academic medical center, the clinical delivery provider, the, the, the primary care office, whatever parts of the healthcare system, as well as the payer, reducing cost of care is very important. But more than that, you're also reducing those social barriers to care at the same time. And that's what I think is, is really powerful to kind of see that live. Dr. O, let's talk now about the importance of earning trust with underserved and marginalized patient populations. There is this longstanding history of distrust with the healthcare system in African-American communities. What will it take for us to build a more relationship-based model of care delivery that engenders trust between patients and their providers? We've got to learn a lot about how do we make sure that we we understand and connect people to folks that have maybe the lived experience that they might have that are the, the brokers of trust in a community. And rather than us show up as the people that are going to come and try to force trust, let's leverage the people that really already have it. And so we're doing a lot of work around, you know, thinking through community health workers, very strong and incredible resource that we have you know, the blessing of, of partnering with the Volunteers of America to use that skill set and leveraging our community health workers to go where we might not be able to go, to talk to members and talk to our patients in ways we may not be able to talk with them and really building that trust through those kind of relationships, but also making sure that our clinicians, anyone that's interacting with our patients, anyone that's interacting with our members really understands how they show up and what biases they're bringing to their work and how some of their biases are standing in the way of trust or are, are standing in the way of them providing the best quality of care to their patients and teaching them how to really understand where they have opportunity to do better in terms of cultural humility and implicit biases. So that's another area that's really important came out of that report. And so we think through like, how do we make sure that we're, we're doing the right thing? And we've got this, you know, very comprehensive kind of what we call the stage gating process in which we take time to make sure that we're we are going through and learning as we go, exploring and getting a lot of information, understanding our consumers better, understanding what their needs are, understanding what the predictive models are telling us, matching that up, designing and testing different innovation, validating it, scaling it, and then continuing to learn from it and draw the insights. And so that's really important as you think through quality improvement. We apply a lot of those same principles, right? Like the PDSA cycles and, and, and applying SDSA cycles to be able to do that. Same thing goes as you're thinking about equity work. And if we're testing and learning different things, we know that, okay, this didn't quite work for this population. We thought the issue was this, but as we learned from our, the insights we were drawing from our consumers, the issue was that. Let's, let's pivot, let's rethink, maybe let's test another product, let's test another sort of innovation and be really nimble on the ability to do that work. And then taking those insights and, you know, building on the other, some of the other parts of the, the NAM perspective is community engagement, empowering community partnerships and engaging patients and communities as your partner. And we've set up this population health program that I mentioned to you earlier as one in which we have people who are responsible in right now in 20 different markets across the country, but continuing to grow that footprint that are responsible for building and leveraging community engagement framework, building partnerships, aligning with CBOs across the country so that we can use the data that we get, the understanding that we get, the insights and the learnings from them to continue to inform our business. Think, rethink how we provide benefits and what benefits that we, we offer our members. Rethink programs that we have, rethink resources that we have. In thinking about the importance of partnerships with underserved communities, can you discuss how one would be able to acquire the data and intelligence about the community beyond the individual patient level? And how should we be thinking about improving patient health literacy and economic empowerment within these populations? So leveraging the, the insights from communities is a very powerful tool as you're thinking through quality improvement. That population health analytics suite just gives us a very high level view of a lot, lots of different things, but we can go drill down to the level of any community and understand 
What kind of outcomes are we seeing for maternal child health? What kind of social needs are really are really plaguing this community? What does that look like, not just by where they live, but also who they are, some of the racial and ethnicity related data? And so we, we use a lot of these things, um, give open access to our associates to understand this and, and bring together lots of different data sets so that we can, we can apply that same quality improvement lens to the way we do our health equity work. And then again, thinking through how do you take all of this stuff and use that to draw insights, but also create opportunities to do better and to do more for your members, for your patients. And so I would say that just one, one thing is like data is so, so important. Now, what that data looks like, some of that is, you know, predictive models, some of that's claims data, some of that's clinical data, but some of that is also the data and the insights and the qualitative exploration that you get from really understanding your patients and understanding the communities that they come from. And thinking through how you make sure that you are leveraging the power the knowledge, the inside, the expertise of community partners at all levels to really be able to advance health equity. Because we might have really good ideas on what food security means and how you can address food security in the market, but we, I can guarantee you that in any market that we're in, there is a partner that, that is there that has been thinking about food insecurity for decades and that has so much, so many more tools, so many more resources and so much more trust that would allow them to be better at it. And so how do we really work with them to be able to make sure that we can get some of this work done together? So as we think about a kind of a path forward, you know, we're, we're, we're thinking a lot about how do we really make sure that we are leveraging all the tools that we have to empower and create an, an equitable healthcare ecosystem. And our vision is that every person would have a fair, just and dignified opportunity to reach their full health potential. We've got to increase the tools that people have at their disposal, things like literacy, um, economic empowerment, health literacy. We've got to build trust. We have to look at disparities. We've got to disaggregate our data in new ways so that we can understand it. And then we have to start to go after the disparities that we see. But we've got to do that in partnership with the people that we care for, with our patients, with our members, with our partners on the ground. We've got to think about bias, making sure we're addressing the bias, teaching our next generation of health professionals, our current generation of health professionals, how do you make sure that you're thinking about trust and you're getting rid of your biases and you're taking care of your patients? Because if we can get things right with those that have been made most vulnerable, those that have been most disenfranchised, we have a great opportunity to leverage those learnings and do great work for the people that already have resources. So as we kind of, we, we've been looking a lot of, and inside is how does that framework on health equity and quality improvement align to a lot of the work that we're doing? And we're making sure that we are asking ourselves the tough questions in every single thing that they mentioned in all 10 of these, these domains that they talked about. How are we doing? What does our scorecard look like? What are we doing in these places? How are we leveraging our data to this? How are we building trust? How are we leveraging partnerships? How are we showing up so that we can be effective in our quality improvement work? And so I would say if, there, if there's a framework that you need to think about how you do your work and particularly bring a quality improvement lens into the work of health equity or bring a health equity lens into the quality improvement work, this framework is a really good one to align around and start to ask yourself, okay, do we have these things? Are we committed this way? What might it look like? What could we do better? And where can we lean in? And so I would encourage people to definitely take a look at that work as you think about your work. And I'll just close with saying, you know, what I what I kind of said earlier, but def I definitely love this quote by Oprah Winfrey. I use it a lot. But when we if we, if you if we can generally believe that none of us has really made it until the least among us has made it, and we can we can think about how do we center those at the margins? How do we move from doing the work for the people that are in the center that we've always focused on and start to think about those that have been marginalized and disenfranchised and we center them, you know, that whole concept of centering the margins. How do we start to do that and think about if we can really, really bring a strong health equity focus in the work that we already believe is important in quality improvement? 
think of how much greater our system can be and how much more equitable it could be when this is not an afterthought, but it's actually part of the fabric that we have. Dr. O, many in our society are still in denial that structural racism even exists. They may think, for example, that education is the ultimate opportunity equalizer. Can you speak a little bit about this? The, the fact is, when you start to look, and there's been really good data that has shown that even if you kind of adjust for things, uh, an African-American woman with a, with a college or more level education is definitely much more likely than a white woman with no high school education to still have an adverse outcome. So education is not enough. We know, you know, you look at Serena Williams and so many other people that have had, that have resources that they have the economics um, that can get them the best care. There's still something that happens in their set, in the setting that does not allow them to have good care. I have a very, very um, personal and difficult story about my own pregnancy that one of my pregnancies that was very, very traumatic and, and really saw and uncovered for me the impacts of structural racism um, and what people go through as they're not being valued, not being prioritized, not being believed um, in the healthcare system. And so making sure there's no really, there's no real one thing, but there, but there are a lot of things. Access to care, making sure people understand, you know, wh where they can go, but also when they do go get that care, that care needs to be culturally sensitive, people don't necessarily manifest their pregnancy experience the same way. And so if a, if a woman is telling you that she is having a problem, she's having an issue, like Serena Williams was doing, it wasn't until her husband went and said, you need to believe her, you need to believe her, that people started to believe her. And so how do you make sure that we also equip the, the, the providers of care, the people that are delivering care, to be really sensitive and understand that every experience is unique People know their bodies. We should take that work, that, that stuff seriously. And then also how do you provide resources around them to support the entire experience of care? Thank you for sharing that. I want to touch on something that you just mentioned in your response and that you talked on a little earlier, which is the, the trust component and tie that to the trauma component. Because I really think that, you know, in my experience working with people who have trauma, they automatically don't trust. And so uh, it's much more difficult to, to achieve trust with trauma experience. And, and for patients who, and for, I would assume, for most vulnerable populations, most minority populations, the healthcare system has hurt them enough that they've been traumatized, that there's an extra hurdle to achieve that trust. Yeah. And so I, I you know, I do think that we can only operate and we can only be successful if we work at the speed of trust, like trust is so important. And it's not just like, okay, I asked you, do you trust me? And then you said, yes. And then you trust me. It's not that. And if we think about some of the traumas that people have been through in the healthcare system for decades, for centuries, um, if we really go back and some of how healthcare has been used to kind of weaponize and perpetuate racism and, and discrimination against so many different groups of people, we can understand why people don't necessarily feel trust us in, in healthcare and don't feel like we are the right people to, to kind of influence or implement their agenda or, or honor their agenda and their wishes. So we know one thing that's really important is that we have got to think more and more, how do we understand and, and become more empathetic culturally uh, the experiences that people have and make them valid and validate them and make sure that we, we understand. I don't understand what it's like me, I have been a Nigerian American, you know, daughter of immigrants that's black my whole life. I don't necessarily understand the experience of my indigenous Native American sister 
and what her her life has been like and living, you know, in in a in a tribal area that's underserved or understaffed. I don't necessarily understand that experience. So if I have a patient that that comes to me with with that with that um, identity, I need to be really willing to understand and and build that trust. And trust is earned; it is not given, and it's not automatic. So it's not that you've got a health system that's got this great fancy name that people are just going to trust you. You got to earn it. And then another thing that I think is really important is that try to figure out who are the right people who have trust that you can leverage to do good things for, for, for our patients and who can you learn from. And that's why I was talking a little bit about some of the community health worker work that we're doing. We're looking at this, some of the work we're doing is looking at primary care utilization and some of our African-American black seniors who are disengaged from care. Now, if I go to them and I call them, I say, hey, I'm the primary care doctor. I'd love to get you back in clinic. I need to see you. If they don't trust me and they don't trust our system, they think, oh, you just want me to come in. You just want my, my money. You just want you know to bill me for something that I don't understand. They're not going to do that. But if the community health worker who they trust, who looks like them, who speaks their language, who lives in their community, who shops at their grocery store, who they see at church, right, who they see walking on the street, comes to them and says, hey, let's talk about why you're not going to the doctor and starts to kind of, uh, you know, unpack that a little bit more. We have much, we've seen already that we have much higher likelihood of that person eventually engaging. And so use the people who have the trust, if, 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 if you've got them, um, or find the people who have the trust, um, and then understand that trust takes time. Dr. O, thank you so much. We're so very grateful to you. I'd love to just squeeze in one more question, if you could let people know how to reach you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, certainly follow me on LinkedIn. I do a lot, a lot do a lot there and share a lot of our, our work there. Um, and that's that's probably the easiest way to get me because I, I can I can connect you through through that. And I'm on social media as at Dr. Wando, D-R-N-W-A-N-D-O. And so um, I, I do a lot of sharing of, of the work there too. So I'm pretty, you, you can find me. I don't think it's hard to find me, but certainly really appreciate the questions. And also would love to hear from folks, you know, in that framework that I that I shared with you, um, what are the things that you've done and that you've succeeded at? And, you know, what, what could we also be learning from you? So I'm in no way saying that We've got all of this figured out. We're still on a, in a, on a learning journey. And I think that we all need to enter this work with, with humility and know that there is no one thing that caused the problems that we have that have led to the health inequities that we see. So there's no one solution. So we, we should be all learning together. And I hope that we have the opportunity to do that. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Dr. O. Very grateful. Appreciate your time.